Well, uh, we're in John chapter number 19, and uh, this will be, uh, I believe, our last series of significant events surrounding Calvary. Of course, uh, next week with the resurrection, we'll be moving away from Calvary and focusing more on the resurrection tomb. But uh, we're going to take a look at some things here today. We'll be in two different passages, and we're going to start out here in John chapter number 19 and verse number 19. It says, And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city. And it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priest of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. It appears to me that Pilate had pretty much had a gut full of all of their politics. And it's like, you know, <laughs> uh, he's giving in to them and crucifying Jesus to his own demise. But when they wanted him to change something, he'd had enough of it. Verse 23, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. Then said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. I want to speak to you this morning on the testimony of supernatural manifestations there at the cross of Calvary. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful passage of Scripture. Lord, wonderful and terrible at the same time. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the suffering that you went through there on the cross of Calvary. Lord, you did it for our sins and not only for ours, but the sins of the entire world. We thank you for that. Now, Lord, we've enjoyed your express, your presence here today. And Lord, we just ask that you would just draw us closer to the word of God. We pray, Father, that the word of God would just go forth with boldness and power and wisdom and compassion. God, we pray that this church service would be exactly what you'd have it to be. I pray for every heart that is here. 
God, that you would speak to hearts and that you would have your will and way. I pray, Father, that you would uh, just help me and enable me that I'd not say anything or do anything that would distract from what you want to accomplish at this hour. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we turn over to Matthew 27 for the remainder of our message, I want to focus your attention on verse 25 through verse number 27. We're a few weeks away, about a month away from Mother's Day, and anytime that I think of Mother's Day, I can't help but think about verse 25 through verse 27. Here is Jesus hanging there on Calvary's cross, and He looks down. Of course, there's soldiers all over the place. There's a multitude of the Jews that are crying out. But there's also some people that were His allies and His friends, and As he would look down there, as he's hanging there on Calvary's cross and suffering and bleeding and in torment, he looks down and there's Mama. And standing next to Mama is the disciple whom Jesus loved. We know it to be John the Apostle. And here Jesus looks down and he's not thinking about himself. You know, when we're hurting, it's uh, the first reaction is we want Mama. Uh, I've heard testimonies from the foxhole of battles that when somebody's hurting, uh, they're wanting mama. And that's a common thing. But here Jesus is not thinking about himself. He's thinking about his mother and he says, woman, behold thy son. The, the trust. Can you imagine the kind of testimony that John must have had with the Lord Jesus Christ to be called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Not only that, but to be the one that Jesus said, John, I'm going to entrust my mother with you. And I want, I want you to treat her like she's your mother. And mother, by the way, behold thy son. And he's pointing at John and saying, I want you to take him as your son. He's going to be my replacement because I'm getting ready to go to be with my Father in heaven. I I can't imagine what a testimony, how much that John must have meant to the Lord. And I'd like to, I'd like to be more like that than I am today, wouldn't you? For the Lord to think that much of our testimony that He would entrust even His own mother to us. What a, what a tremendous thing. As we draw our attention to the supernatural manifestations that take place at Calvary's cross, John gives us some of the the things about the crucifixion. But as we go to the book of Matthew, we find that there are some further details that I want to draw out for today's message. Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to see that there were some supernatural manifestations that were taking place, some things that only God could have done. Some things that, like when you read your insurance policy and they talk about tornadoes and hurricanes and typhoons and tsunamis and all of these natural disasters that take place that are beyond man's control, they very often in policies refer to them as acts of God. I've always just kind of felt a little bit ashamed of that. I've always kind of felt a little bit of jealousy on God's behalf 
that they refer to all of these natural disasters as acts of God. And, and that's true. They are. But I wish that all of the good things and the blessings that they also would refer to those as acts of God. In Matthew 27, look with me at verse number 45. It says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice. So from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness. We're talking about the middle of the day here. We're not talking about 6 p.m., We're not even talking about six in the morning. The Jewish day started from evening to morning. And so the sixth hour of the Jewish day, that Jewish day began at six in the morning. And so the sixth hour was noon. And the ninth hour was 3 p.m. So from noon to 3 p.m., the time that's arguably one of the brightest times of the day all of a sudden, this supernatural darkness sets in. I think about what Jesus said in John chapter 9 and verse number 5. He says, as long as I am in the world, He says, I am the light of the world. And even though this was a miraculous thing that God did, it wasn't just something that God did arbitrarily. Well, I think I'll just do something miraculous just to show them who the boss is. It wasn't that at all. There was something very significant about that darkness that set in as the creator of the universe, as the light of the world was getting ready to die that horrible death on Calvary's cross. I believe, as the songwriter once wrote, that the sun refused to shine. I don't know how God did it. I don't believe that this was a lunar or solar eclipse. I don't know if God just brought a thick cloud over it. I tend to think we'll find out maybe one of these days when we get to heaven, if it'll matter then. But maybe we'll find out that God just spoke the Word. Or thought the thought, because everything in this universe is being upheld and held together just simply by God. You ever go into a room? We have dimmers in some of our lights where we can just kind of dim that light just gradually a little bit of it at a time. But we have other lights that when we go into a room, we just flip a switch and the light's either on or the lights off. I don't think that God has a switch for the sun, but don't you think that it's possible that perhaps maybe God just turned the light out just like that? The scripture doesn't tell us any details about it being gradual or partial. It just simply says that there was darkness from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, and it was a miraculous supernatural manifestation that something was going on in the universe more than just simply a bunch of Roman soldiers executing a criminal. Why did darkness set in? Well, we almost got to it there in verse number 46, but notice it says Jesus 
cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. What does that mean? Well, the Scripture interprets it for us. That is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? These are amazing words that were spoken by our Lord and Savior. These words were amazing because at that moment, in a hall of history, all eternity past and all eternity future, something was taking place at that moment in time and space when Jesus felt something that He didn't even know how to handle. Always before, when Jesus would talk to God, He would refer to Him as my Father, my Father, my Father. At this moment, He said, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? That's significant. Because Jesus is playing a role, if you will. I don't know a better terminology to use, but His role at that moment in time was not as Creator, was not as Son, but His role was sacrifice. There on the cross of Calvary, He has become the sacrifice, the only sacrifice that can make us favorable to God, the only sacrifice that can atone for the sins of the entire world, was right there and right then at that moment in time. And Jesus is feeling something that He's never felt before, something that He could not ever understand before. He is feeling forsaken by God. You and I, every one of us here, have probably had a moment in the darkness. And by the way, God uses darkness in our life. I don't like darkness. I don't like those dark times. You ever went through a time in your life when even though the sun is shining on the outside, on the inside in your heart, it just feels like that you're in a deep, deep dark tunnel and you can't even seem to get out of it or see the light of day? I got news for you. God can and will use that darkness in our life. This darkness has set in. Why? Because the Lamb of God, the sacrifice, is at this moment in time experiencing being forsaken by His heavenly Father. That fellowship is completely broken. At that moment, God the Father has turned His back on His Son. And Jesus had never felt that before. And in all of His emotion there on the cross of Calvary, He's not saying, I hurt, I hurt. He's not saying, I thirst. At this moment, He's not worried about how He's feeling physically. He's saying, my God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? Jesus knew that God would have to forsake Him. Jesus knew all that. It wasn't a question that Jesus didn't know the answer. It was a question of emotion that Jesus couldn't handle what He was feeling at that moment. You say, preacher, what exactly was He feeling? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 21 explains it in detail. Where Paul reveals in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For He speaking of God, 
hath made Him, speaking of Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. You've got sin on your soul and sin in your life. It's a stain. It's something that has to be cleansed. It's something that has to be washed away. There has to be a substitute. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Sin is a horrible, horrible thing. If you think sin is no big deal, then you've never really, really contemplated what Jesus was feeling there on the cross of Calvary. You've never really tried to consider Him. You've just considered yourself. You consider what Jesus is going through. The sinless, righteous Lamb of God. The one who lived 33 and a half sinless years. I can't hardly make it 33 and a half minutes. How about you? Never sinned. Did nothing but good. We ought to be ashamed of our pitiful lives and our apathy and our complacency and our selfishness when we don't consider what Jesus has done for us. He's feeling our guilt. He's feeling our shame. He is suffering everything that we deserve to suffer and He's doing it in our place. If that doesn't touch your heart or melt your heart, your heart is rock hard. I'm scared for you if that doesn't do something to at least touch you in some way. He becomes sin in the Old Testament. The children of Israel were selfish and self-serving and they were gripers and complainers. And no matter what God had done in working miracles to provide for them, and to protect them, and to manifest Himself as their God. They still complained and murmured. And at one point, God had had enough of them. And what did He do? He sent these fiery serpents down that started biting them. As soon as they'd bite them, they'd, uh, they'd bite a person, that person would get a plague, and the dying process would begin immediately. That's a horrible, horrible poison. Hey, I don't like snakes, do you? I I don't like snakes at all. I can't imagine what a fiery one would be like. Man, that would, you talk about freaking you out, that would freak a person out. They're being bitten by fiery serpents. What was the solution? It wasn't an injection. It wasn't anti-venom. What was the solution? God said to Moses, I want you to take a brazen serpent. I want you to make an image of those serpents and I want you to put it on a pole. And when you put that serpent, and by the way, that serpent is related to the curse. You can go all the way back to Genesis chapter number 3 and see that. And here's this brazen serpent. When light hits brass... It creates this appearance of fire, all of the reds and the yellows and so forth. So here's a brazen serpent that they've attached to a pole. And Moses, God says, I want you to hold up that serpent. And whoever looks upon that, there's faith. They had to do what God prescribed. Whosoever looks upon it will live. And so you know what Moses did? He's got 
this brass serpent on this pole. And John chapter number 3 says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That brazen serpent represented the judgment of God. The curse. God, Moses, was holding up that curse. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ, our Savior, literally became our curse there on Calvary's cross as He hung there. And the sun, the light turned to darkness. The sun refused to shine. The second supernatural manifestation we find in Matthew 27 and verse number 50 says Jesus, when He had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Yielded up the ghost. You know what that tells me? That tells me that Jesus, the Son of God, that we are made in the image of God. We have a, we have a body that contains our soul and our spirit. We live in a generation, even in Christian churches today, where the focus is on the physical. Listen, I'm not a body that happens to have a soul. I am an eternal soul that happens to be housed in a body. A very corrupt one, by the way, with a very corrupt nature. One that's going to die. One that is not the way that God intended it to be. But we need to see that from God's perspective, it is the eternal and the spiritual that we need to focus on. Listen, young people... Don't try to, don't focus all of your attention on your life. When you're young, we think about our future and we think about our careers and who we're going to marry and are we going to have children and we think about the American dream and this wonderful life. And you know, folks, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. Hey, God ordained marriage. God says that children are an heritage from the Lord. God says that if you're married, then us and our spouses should be heirs together of the grace of life. Now, we should be enjoying life together, but we cannot truly enjoy life the way that God wants us to unless God has His rightful place in our hearts and in our lives. Hey, what was going on in Sodom in the days of Lot? Oh, we know there was all kinds of sexual perversions. We know that there was all kinds of violence, but I submit to you here this morning that those were the symptoms, not the root problem. Jesus revealed the root problem. He says that they had abundant of idleness. He says they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Nothing wrong with all of those things. What was the problem with it? That was their life. They had no heart toward their Creator. I I think about the illustration I heard a preacher tell years ago. Forgive me, I probably won't tell it near as good as he did. But he talked about seeing, seeing that hog there in the hog pen, fenced in, and right at the side of the hog pen was this great tree. And from that tree, from time to time, there would be acorns, or as we say here, acorns. How'd I do, Brother Steve? These acorns would drop down. And here's the hog eating these acorns. Just eating them. 
Never ever looks up to see where they're coming from. Never looks up to consider. Never says, thank you tree for these acorns. Never even considers. You know what you have right there? You have the days of Lot. You have the days of Noah. You have the days of the United States of America. God, God doesn't want to be high on your priority list. God wants to be preeminent. And He deserves it. Who else has loved you like the Lord? Who else has done for you what the Lord has done? Who else has given us life and breath and all of the different things that we have enjoyed? And listen, because of our sin, we didn't deserve a single one of them. But what does He do? He just keeps giving. And He just keeps giving. And man just keeps taking it and taking it, thinking that He did it Himself. And the whole time, God just, just keeps giving. Just keeps giving. Verse 51, it says, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. Wow, we see the veil of the temple. In the Old Testament, there was a temple, and before that, there was a tabernacle. And God told Moses, I want you to set all this up according to the pattern that I show you. And that's what they did. And all of this had to do with all of those Old Testament sacrifices that couldn't do what Jesus is now doing right here in our text, but they all pointed toward Jesus. They were temporary. They were what God was wanting. He wanted a blood sacrifice. That's what He required. But they had to keep doing it year after year after year. They were just pictures. They were just types. But inside that tabernacle, if you could picture a room like this auditorium and say, for instance, right up here where the platform is, if you could picture, if you will, a huge massive curtain hanging from the ceiling, blocking so that you couldn't see what was behind this curtain. And up here on this curtain behind this platform would be the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of that Ark would be the mercy seat with the cherubims facing each direction. And that represented the throne of God. It's a pattern. It's a picture of God on His throne in heaven with those cherubims surrounding the throne. And by the way, those cherubims cease not day and night crying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. He's worthy. Behind that veil, there was only one person that could go behind that veil without dropping dead instantly. That's how holy that God is. And God said, He, he laid out every specific about how that high priest needed to bring the right sacrifice. He needed to kill it in the right way. He needed to do just so with the blood. He had to be right with God Himself. He had to have on the right vesture. I mean, everything had to be just exactly the way that God prescribed. Say, why is God so nitpicky? Because He's God. If that priest were to enter that veil, and by the way, that priest would be bringing blood back on this mercy seat, not just for himself, but for the entire nation. 
the congregation of Israel would be out hoping and waiting, hoping that God would accept that sacrifice and that their priests did it right because their sins and the forgiveness of their sins was dependent upon it. That priest, after he would present that blood, they would know if it was accepted because he'd come back out of that veil. If he hadn't come, if he didn't come out, that means he was dead. He didn't do it right. That was the only access that the children of Israel had to God was through that Levitical high priest and through that veil. When Jesus hung on that cross, God, I believe that He <laughs> reached down with His invisible hands and He just ripped that veil from the top to the bottom, right there in the middle. And as that veil rent from the top to the bottom a place that was only supposed to be seen by the high priest, all of a sudden you could look inside that veil and there's the mercy seat. Direct access, praise the Lord. I don't know why anybody would want to have to go to an earthly priest and confess their sins when God says that that veil has been rent in twain. We have direct access personal access to God. You talk about talk about waste. We don't like wasting things, do we? We don't like we don't like something going to waste. I hate it when things go to waste. I look at our whole culture and our whole society and you see all of this potential and all this positive and you just think so much of it's just going to waste. I think probably one of the biggest things in the universe that we waste is the fact that we have direct access to God and about the only thing that we do with it is, God, thank you for this food. In Jesus' name, amen. We can go straight to Him. Hold your place here in Matthew 27 and look with me at Hebrews chapter number 9. The book of Hebrews gives us some further details and further blessings about this personal access that we have, not through an earthly priest, not through a human priest, but through the Lord Jesus Christ who rose again the third day and now He is our High Priest sitting at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 8 says, "...the Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances, imposed on them until the time of Reformation. By the way, we're reading about the time of Reformation right here. Verse 11, But Christ, being come an high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctify it to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You know what that tells me? That tells me that the power of the rending of this veil, giving us direct access to God, that has freed us. It's freed our conscience so now we can personally serve God. What a joy. What a blessing. Number three. Turn back to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, and as we've already read, verse 51, it says, not only was the veil of the temple rent in twain from the top to the bottom, it says, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. We have the earth quaking. How many of you have ever been in an earthquake? Uh, there was an earthquake that took place in uh, the town where I graduated high school. And that earthquake took place just a few months before my senior year ended. You know, I was there on the high school property. It was right before class started that morning. I was talking to some of my buddies and friends and cutting up. And I remember that I had one friend that was standing up against the wall. And I was talking to him and he said, wow, I just feel funny all of a sudden. And somebody over here is like, wow, me too all of a sudden. And got all this going on. An earthquake, I forget what, it was five point something, six point something. It ended up actually condemning the high school building. Sounds like a pretty big earthquake. You know what's crazy? I didn't feel a thing. I don't know, maybe, I, I, I've always, most people say I'm pretty laid back. Maybe I've just got a tigger living inside of me, huh? Just bouncy, bouncy, bouncy. I don't know. I don't know what that was. But other people were feeling it. I don't remember anything. But it happened. This earthquake, I don't think, was one of those kind that some people felt it and others didn't. This was so powerful that the rocks were rending. They were breaking and splitting. This was a powerful, powerful earthquake. I think about Hebrews chapter number 12. We won't take time to turn there, but the Lord says that one more time, not only do I shake the earth, but I shake heaven also. This quaking, this shaking, and this breaking that's going on there at the cross of Calvary. Now, I've said all of that, all three of these points. We've got light turned to darkness. We've got the veil of the temple being rent in twain. We have the earthquake and the rocks that are breaking into pieces. Everything points to this one thing in verse number 54 in conclusion. And that is, all of it has a testimony. All of these things presented a powerful testimony there on Calvary's hill. It says in verse 54, Now when the centurion, this is a lost Roman soldier, and they that were with him, who knows who all that means? It could have been some Jews. It could have been some fellow Roman soldiers. It says they were watching Jesus. They saw the earthquake, and those things that were done... They feared greatly. 
We need some more of that in our culture today. You may need some more of that in your own heart, fearing greatly. I mean, people just going through life, just not taking things that are real as things that are serious. It says they saw it, they feared greatly. I guarantee you, don't you think that if you were there at Calvary's cross and you saw what they saw, if you had a half a brain in your head, you'd be fearing too, wouldn't you? Darkness from noon to three. Earthquake. Now, I don't think that they knew about the veil of the temple being rent in twain, but I guarantee you some people knew about it. It says they feared greatly, and watch what they say. The centurion said, truly. I don't know what that centurion did. He might have handed the nails to the crucifier. He might have been watching the crowd. He might have been giving the orders that he was given from Pilate. I don't know his involvement in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, but he's right there in the middle of it. He probably had a hand in it. But now, oh, now it's not mocking. Now it's not, ha ha ha, hail King of the Jews. Now it's not, ha ha ha, if you're the Son of God, save yourself. No, there's a testimony and a powerful one. And this centurion has had a change of heart. And he's come to his senses. And he saw what's real and what's true. And he said, truly, this is the Son of God. Powerful, powerful testimony at the cross of Christ. Let me ask you a question. If you're saved here this morning... Is there any power in your testimony? Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we've had 2,000 years of gospel preaching. You're here today, and if you're saved, it's because somebody took this message and preached it to you, and you believed it by faith. And now you're saved. Your sins have been forgiven, and you're on your way to heaven. But I guarantee you, it wasn't just, okay, sign me up, sounds good to me. It was something that took place powerfully in your heart and in your soul. And it was because of a powerful testimony. How's your testimony? Does it have any power? If a Roman centurion was watching you and uh, perhaps maybe was spying on you and watching your daily life, would there be enough power in your testimony for that Roman centurion to say, truly, they believe on the Son of God? In the book of Ephesians, chapter number 5, and verse number 8, it says of the Christian, For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord, Walk as children of light. Why aren't people getting saved like they used to? Why has God seemed so distant from our churches? I'll tell you why. There's too much darkness. Too many people who claim to be saved that aren't walking as children of light. 
they're walking just like lost people. The Bible says in 1 John 5, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Let me tell you something. A brethren is a saved person that has been made righteous, not only in God's eyes, but that salvation has started to produce a righteous and holy effect in our lives. That's a testimony. And folks, it's a powerful testimony. If you've been saved, then there's something about a fellow uh, brother in Christ who's also saved. And you know that it's more than just saying they're saved. You know that, wow, their life is different. They're like Jesus Christ. You know what? As a Christian, I grew up in churches. I didn't even know these people existed. I'm serious. Isn't that sad? Isn't that pitiful? Baptist churches, and I look back and I can count on le- on one hand uh, and have some fingers left over the, the, the men and the women that I'd look back as a child and say, you know what, that was a real saint of God that loved God and were they were holy and they were righteous and they were serious about God and prayer and they had some power in their life. I didn't have any powerful testimonies growing up. But when I got right with the Lord, God put my path in some godly people's life. And you know what? I like being around them. When I got right with the Lord, I didn't like being around all of my old sinning buddies. I didn't like that anymore. It made me uncomfortable. Why? Because my heart got right with God. I wasn't comfortable around them. I was comfortable around the righteous. Why? Because I'd passed from darkness into light. Why would we want to say that we're saved and still walk in the darkness? How foolish is that? 1 John chapter number 5 and verse 16, an obscure passage of scripture. Hey, didn't Jesus tear the veil? And give us direct access to God. First John 5.16 If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. Boy, there is more in that verse than I can even expound on here this morning. But I'll tell you what this verse is talking about. It's talking about interceding to God on behalf of sinners. People that have... You know, God says there is a sin unto death. You know, there's a line that we can cross where God says, that's enough. I've had enough of it. See, where is that line, preacher? (laughs) Only God knows. But I sure wouldn't want to be camping out my life too close to it, would you? God's so merciful. He put up with me for four years. And I came to that line and I knew where God was saying, you know what, I've had enough. You better get right. I'm glad that I got right. Are you going to God on behalf Are you going straight and using your access to God as a testimony for the lost world around us? And then finally, and we'll close, Matthew 21, 
Verse number 44. And whosoever shall fall on this stone. What stone is Jesus talking about? He's talking about Himself. The chief cornerstone. He is the cornerstone of our salvation. He says, whosoever shall fall upon this stone shall be broken. And by the way, that broken is not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. For some reason, I think about the old commercial. I think it was for an auto part, Brother Ralph. They said, you can pay me now or you can pay me later. The gist of it is the cost later is going to be a whole lot more. You know, we live our life thinking, well, I don't want God to control me. I want to do my own thing. But Jesus says, look, you fall on me, you're going to be broken. I spent four years of my life thinking that's not a good thing. I want, I want to live my life my way. But God had to break me. He had to break my will. He had to break my heart for my sin. I had to have a broken and a contrite heart and realize that my sin's not just hurting me, it's an offense to my Savior who loves me. I'm glad that I got broken. And you know what? If I hadn't have gotten broken and fallen upon that stone, the Lord Jesus Christ, I am certain, I am certain that as I'm living today, I probably would have already had that stone fall upon me and grind my life to powder. Powerful testimony at the cross. There's a powerful testimony of one of God's children living the life as if we have been to Calvary's cross. Question and we'll close. Does the world see anything supernatural about Calvary in your life? Do I have a powerful testimony that's making a difference in those around? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank You for the cross. Thank You for changing our lives. Thank You for these that have come to church today. We pray that the Holy Spirit of God would take the message of the cross, the testimony of these supernatural events, more importantly, the testimony of what You have supernaturally done in people's lives and make Yourself real. I pray that You would shake us. I pray that You would break us. I pray, Father, that You would help us to get out of the darkness and into the light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Our invitation song is hymn number 66. As we sing this song, the altar's open. If you need to get right with the Lord, or if you need to get saved, or maybe you just need to get a burden to have the right kind of testimony that will make a difference in people's lives. Whatever your case is, we invite you to come as we sing. The altar is open.